Greetings, friends and neighbors, and welcome to Episode 9 of the Community Solutions Podcast, coming to you from the students, faculty, staff, and community partners associated with the Department of Social and Behavioral Sciences at the Indiana University Fairbanks School of Public Health in downtown Indianapolis, Indiana. I'm Jack Terman, Jr., a faculty member in the department, and your host for this podcast. Thanks so much for listening, and please keep spreading the word about our podcast to your friends and neighbors around the world, as together we work to build healthy, hope-filled neighborhoods. Please remember to subscribe to, follow, rate, and review our podcast. Today, our episode takes us to the front lines of the U.S. opioid epidemic. Our students, Bryce and Tina, converse with Professor Dennis Watson, a former faculty member in our department who is now at the University of Illinois, Chicago. Dennis's work spans the spectrum from prevention of the epidemic to treatment of individuals suffering from opioid addiction. Dennis provides a lot of insight into the positive effects of needle exchange programs and medication assistant treatment programs. In this conversation, you will learn the data that debunks many of the myths that surround these vital programs. He also highlights with compassion the importance of addressing the social, economic, and environmental needs of people afflicted with this addictive disorder as an essential element of any treatment program for these individuals. I hope this session provides you with a great understanding about an issue so important to the health of our nation and its citizens. So let's join the conversation. Tina. And today we've decided to talk with Dr. Watson about his work with the opioid crisis in Indiana. So Dr. Watson, what research or programs are you currently working on that listeners can be on the lookout for as potential programming to implement in their own communities? So we're working on a lot of different issues related to the opioid epidemic um, and it spans the whole continuum from prevention related research to treatment related research um, on the prevention end. What we're doing is we have a large project that we are collaborating with the Indiana State Department of Health on that is, um, it's much bigger than our component, but our component of that is um, to evaluate some of the policy changes related to opioids that have happened in the state, um, particularly around the year 2013. And this is a, a project that's funded by the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. Specifically, the two main policies that we're looking at are um, opioid prescribing guidelines that went into effect during that time period. And then also we are looking at a lot of stuff related to naloxone access and distribution. And um, there's a few other things that we're doing in relation to that project, but I would say those are two of the biggest. Some of the more interesting work with that project that we're conducting um, we're doing some evaluation using the state's prescription drug monitoring system data, which is data that captures any narcotics that are that have uh, prescriptions that are filled by pharmacists in the state. 
to understand what are, what have the effects of prescribing changes been on people getting opioids, um, also things related to problematic prescribing like opioids with benzodiazepines. Um, and then uh, the work of my colleague Bradley Ray has been really interesting linking coroner data to prescription drug monitoring data to see sort of what drugs are in people's systems when they die through toxicology reports and then going to see from that once we know what drugs are in their system looking at the prescription drug monitoring system to see did they actually have a prescription that was filled within a certain amount of time or written within a certain amount of time um, and we're really seeing that you know, not a lot of people that are showing up to the coroner's office comparatively actually have been prescribed anything within the past year. It's mostly street drugs that are causing the, the majority of things that he's seeing. Um, and so the other thing we're doing is just trying to understand um, naloxone access with that project and Good Samaritan laws, so laws that protect people um, from arrest and criminal justice sanctions if they would call 911 after administering naloxone. And, you know, some of the stuff we're seeing there is that, you know, most people in the state um, that we have gotten data back from are calling 911, but that there's a, a, you know, a small but significant minority who are not, and it seems to be because they don't really fully understand or trust the Good Samaritan laws and that they won't be, you know, suffer ramifications by the police. So that's the prevention end, and really quick, just to give you an overview of the treatment end, we're doing an evaluation of medication-assisted treatment expansion, which are drugs that are used to treat opioid overdose disorders like methadone, buprenorphine. We're doing that in Porter Stark counties and Scott County. And Scott County, as you may know, is where we had a very large HIV epidemic that happened three years ago, almost to, th to this month, actually, three years ago to this month. And then the final thing that we're doing is we're currently working on expanding or testing and expanding an ED-based opioid overdose intervention. So we have recovery coaches meeting with people in the emergency department. This is based on Dr. Krista Brucker's work at Eskenazi Hospital here in Indianapolis. And we're doing a randomized trial of that. Awesome. So you mentioned Scott County. In Scott County and several other counties here in Indiana, they started to implement needle exchanges as a way to try to tackle this issue. Needle exchanges tend to be pretty controversial as we've seen on the news and some counties stop doing them because they're seen as enabling the habit as opposed to being an actual solution. What do you see as ramifications for a community that decides locking up this population is better than providing evidence-based solutions? So I think there's really two issues here with, with this and one is you know, obviously people not liking syringe service programs. And the other issue is um, more so the criminal justice approach versus the evidence-based approach, right? And for the syringe service programs, you know, a lot of what we see there is that communities, um, obviously, like you said, believe that they're enabling to individuals. They perpetuate drug use. What we see and what the research shows is the exact opposite of that, that um, really what they do is they help prevent the spread of disease and can help build a relationship with people that can bridge them into treatment. And with the second part of your question around evidence-based treatments, you know, syringe service programs are an evidence-based prevention tool. Um, Medication-assisted treatment is another thing that is stigmatized that people don't like because we typically treat people with an opioid to help them with their opioid addiction. And the difference is that 
we're not treating them with an opioid they get high from. We're treating with them, them with an opioid that prevents withdrawal symptoms. Um, so it allows them to be functional in their daily life. But people still see that as drug use um, when it is actually a, it's a prescribed treatment um, and it has evidence base to it. And so those things have been shown to improve outcomes for people. We do not see with criminal justice approaches. I mean, many people believe that if you put someone in jail, you're teaching them a lesson and that really what we're doing in those instances when we lock people up in jail, we may be getting them some type of treatment. Um, oftentimes they're not getting treatment. Oftentimes they're still using drugs while they're in jail. Oftentimes we actually see that when we let people out of jail, they're at much higher risk for overdose because they have detoxed while they're in jail and they go back out on the streets and they access opioids and they start using it at what they were, the levels they were using before and then they're intolerant. So they can, they're at much higher risk of overdose. So that can be driving part of the problem rather than the solution. So two things there is, you know, if we can divert people from going to prison and get them into treatment, that's a much better approach with better evidence-based outcomes. Um, but also if people do go to jail, because sometimes drug users do commit behaviors that should land them in jail. The main problem is when we're locking people up just for drug use itself. But when we do have people in jail, we should be bridging them with treatment services as they get out. Um, and getting them into evidence-based treatment, which doesn't always happen. And one other issue with this is when we put people in jail and we let them out, we're creating a whole bunch of barriers to them being successful in treatment. So we know that one of the biggest things that can predict treatment failure is that you have someone and you link them up with methadone, you link them up with buprenorphine, you link, even if you link them up with an, a totally abstinence-based program, that's a problem for people coming out of jail when they don't have a license or transportation to get there, when they don't have child care to take care of their kids so they can go there, um, and when they don't have uh, employment or housing. I mean, all of those things can prevent people from being successful in treatment. And so we're basically creating more barriers to people actually engaging in treatment when we put them through the penal system first. All right, so you spoke a little bit about uh, medicated-assisted treatments. We know that's controversial with a number of people, especially in Indiana. Um, so what are some gaps here in the state that need to be addressed to strengthen this potential solution? One of them is really that we need to make sure that um, we're not just implementing the palatable medication-assisted treatments. So Vivitrol, for instance, is a medication-assisted treatment that many people like because it actually is not a psychoactive substance, it's not an opioid itself. What it does is when you inject it, it prevents someone from feeling the effects of opioids and it lasts in the body for a number of weeks. So people really like that. The problem with that is, is that one thing that we know is that while all medication-assisted treatments, Vivitrol, methadone, buprenorphine, have been demonstrated to be effective, we shouldn't just be giving one type out to people, that the decision for what type of medication-assisted treatment someone should have is a decision between the individual and their physician, and it's based on a wide variety of factors, including how much they're using at the time they get into treatment, what types, what their living situation and, and social supports are, um, their experiences um, with success or failures in the past with different types of treatment. All those things need to be considered. So what we need to see in communities is not just that we have a medication-assisted treatment, but that we have access to all three types so that people have choices. Um, that doesn't happen here. Uh, very few counties have access to all. If you have access to any type of medication-assisted treatment, you definitely don't have access to all of them in most counties. Um, the other big barrier for people, like I said, is just 
we do not provide social supports. Um, even though we don't have a lot of money for treatment, there's even less money for social supports that keep people engaged. We need to be providing people with housing. We need to be providing people with income. We need to be providing people with um, healthcare, all of those types of things outside of just treatment or they're going to fail. Um, and that's basic intro psych 101 Maslow's hierarchy of needs. You can't expect people to become self-actualized, recovery-oriented people unless you address their main needs for safety, securities, relationships, um, food, shelter, all of those things first. So um, we are coming to the final end of our podcast. So just as a quick wrap-up, do you have any advice for those who are starting out um, tackling the opioid addiction and what can they do when they feel like the opioid crisis is kind of an uphill battle in their community? What kind of advice can you give to them? I would say the biggest problem that you're going to encounter is stigma that prevents people from um, wanting these treatments in their backyard because they do feel like it's enabling, like we've already discussed. Um, one of the best ways that you can get people over that is to make sure that the stories are heard, that there's a personal face put to the problem. Uh, for instance, in a lot of the communities that we have, um, a lot of the overdoses aren't fully being reported that are true overdoses because you have, you know, sometimes you have small town mentalities where the overdose is stigmatized, but the officials, you know, they know the families, they know the person um, who overdosed, so that doesn't get reported that way. Um, and so what I have seen, and this is anecdotal, this is not through our research, but I've heard this from the people who are doing the work, is that oftentimes when they go to these small communities, they're being told there is no opioid problem because they're not seeing it even though it's happening. The stories aren't getting out there. Um, and so just making sure that there's open dialogues and discussions and that people understand the facts. You know, it's good to have the statistics there, but if people are against something, numbers don't often change their mind, it's the stories. Um, and really keeping that in the forefront when you're explaining things to people is how to, even if you have numbers that are strong, how do you wrap a story around those to get people to understand what they mean? All right, well, wonderful. Dr. Watson, thank you so much for joining us today and talking about this and um, helping our listeners better understand the opioid crisis. We really appreciate you being here today. Thanks. Thanks.